Welcome back to Global Supply Chain Week. This is the final day. I'm Mike Bowden-Distel. I'm an analyst and market expert here at FreightWaves. And for this session, we have Harris Ligon. Harris is a co-founder and CEO of a stealth transportation technology startup. Uh, this is a startup that's working on digitizing a critical segment of the supply chain. And prior to his current venture, he has a great deal of experience in uh, transportation industry, both at uh, Uber Freight and also um, with the Class 1 railroads, uh, Norfolk Southern and Burlington Northern Santa Fe. Harris, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mike. Really looking forward to the conversation today. Absolutely. So just want to you know, start with uh, your current venture. If there's anything you can tell us, I know a stealth startup means you're going to we're going to learn more about it in the future, but um, just just what can you tell us uh, about it, if anything? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the the way the way to think about uh, what we are working on is we really see a, a great opportunity within the surface transportation space to leverage. Uh, there, there's just a there's a ton of data out there around different modes of transportation that are oftentimes overlooked, and we feel like we've got a really good opportunity. Got some, got some customers. We're really excited about what we're working on. We think that we can leverage a good deal of that data to provide a better perspective about how to use and procure more effectively across the surface transportation and even ocean and air networks as well. That sounds great. It sounds very related to what we do here at FreightWaves on, on our data side. So looking forward to, to working with you on that in the future. Um, wanted to have you on today to just really go through, you know, some of what's happening in uh, the surface transportation market, sort of from your perspective. And um, you know, since this is the industrial day of the of the conference, um, wanted to get your take on the industrial economy. I mean, it seems like you know industrial production, you know, growing pretty well here. But but want to get your thoughts. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think if we were to have this conversation a couple of months ago. I think there was this looming question around, is it inflation or is it stagflation? And what, is, what does that really look like? I, I think for us, the industrial sector continues to be a bright spot in the market. And we're beginning to see quite a few, what we believe to be leading indicators in the supply chain that indicate that growth is definitely on the horizon and is going to be here to stay. However, I, I think if we back up a little bit, I think when people say stagflation, they're they're worried about some underlying supply shock. And so from, from what we're seeing in the data and kind of how we think about the world, the only bump in the road that we're thinking on the, on the horizon, which you've done a great job of covering, is really around the, the, the chips, the, the semiconductors, the processors that are out there that is really slowing the ability for consumers to be able to pick up finished goods. However, we think that there's a there's a, a portion of goods that will continue to be to be you know up and to the right, and the demand for the raw materials to be able to source that something for like homes, office buildings, expansion into into new parts of the country that is continuing to boom, and we are we are seeing those trends certainly increase. Yeah, that's encouraging. I mean, it seems like uh, you know, the industrial production in general um, you know, seems to be continuing to grow, um, but you know we'll see what happens with you know, rising interest rates if that causes eventually a slowdown in. In, in housing or if inflation, you know, cuts in too much into consumers' uh, you know, budgets, but a lot of uh, interesting things there. It's good to see that you see growth uh, in the economy. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on, um, you know, the, the, the rail uh, industry right now. And it seems like there's this um, sort of push and pull between rail service and, uh, you know, rail margins. And so over the last, let's say, however many years, the, the, the rail margins have really sort of been the rail's top priority, getting that operating ratio sort of as low as possible. And now the railroads um, you know, seem to be uh, talking a good game, at least, about um, you know, shifting to sort of a service mindset, uh, maybe expanding into new markets. But, but do you think 
they're really going to you know act upon that, or is that just um, sort of posturing? So I honestly believe that there there is a a there is a new renaissance coming, and I think there is speaking on the rail industry specifically. I think that you've seen a trend, especially at the executive leadership levels, where the leaders in the space, the 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 folks that are driving real change and delivering real value to their customers in the rail space, have been very customer centric, and I think that we will continue to see the needle move in that direction. So I think that there, there's real effort behind that, Mike. I think the interesting thing, and going back to the question that you just asked, asked earlier, when we think about industrial demand and we think about kind of where things are shifting, and, and so some of those leading indicators that we're seeing are increasing shipments on the raw material side. And so when I think about why that might be, and home starts being one of them, we're, we're definitely seeing uh, the backlog of home starts really start to creep up. And, and so the, the way that we were thinking about that in December, for every one single family home that was being constructed in the United States, there were about nine and a half others waiting to be built. And so year over year, when you, when you kind of think about that, home per- permits are actually up six and a half percent. So what that tells us is that there continues to be demand and those construction materials aren't typically moving by barge or air, or in many cases, ocean. You're seeing a lot of that material, whether it's to lay a new road or to build some houses, oftentimes moving by rail as well. And so we think that the the market will continue to ask for and railroads will be required to deliver on not just cost competitiveness or not just operating ratios, but also customer service as well. Yeah, I think that's really important is um, you know, the, the, the service aspect of it. Um, and I wanted to ask you about the the, the CP Kansas City Southern merger. Um, do you sort of buy the, the argument that that extends the reach of the railroads? And this is actually going to be good for rail shippers, um, just because there's maybe fewer interchanges. You can extend the reach of where um, you can you can uh, move goods on on one railroad. Yeah, I, I'm a big pro competitive person, so I, I think the way that the merger shook out was interesting. When I, when, I, when I think about how this will extend the reach is that you, you for the first time in, in history, will have a single server that is operating across three different nations, which I, I think is really going to be valuable to be able to connect the entire country, both north and south from, from the United States. I think the interesting part about that is it is, it is going to create some new, some new interchanges, some new connections, and potentially open up brand new services that have never existed before. And so I think from a cross-border trade perspective, if you are in Winnipeg and you need to have access to markets in Mexico, for the first time, you will probably have a much more streamlined service. You will be less reliant on um, longer interchanges or interchanges between multiple railroads. And I think there is some sort of transit value inherent within that. I think what I am ex- most excited to see is how does that change or um, impact border crossings, delays, dwells, and instances where you would have a ton of activity at certain ports, like in Detroit, for example, does that actually save truckers some time? Does it create more uh, capacity on the highways? And more importantly, does it actually allow the concept of nearshoring to actually be more impactful across the entire North American continent, Mm -hmm. not just for for a few select uh, major metropolitan centers, or for a few select shippers. Yeah, it was really exciting stuff. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how those trade flows, you know, end up changing in, in, in the years to, to come. Um, you know, while we're on the, the topic of sort of, you know, imports and, and border crossings, uh, I just wanted to get your, your take on sort of the topic of the hour, which really sort of continues to be the situation um, in LA and Long Beach, where, you know, what I find so interesting is, you know, with all of these 
ships, you know, queued off the coast. Imports have actually been down like four months in a row on a year-over-year basis, and are actually really significantly below where they were in in May because there's um, just so much, you know, congestion, you know, at the ports. Maybe lack of personnel, maybe not enough space for containers and 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 trucks and those things. But you know, how do you see all of that, you know, shaking out as as the year progresses? I mean, it seems like you're pretty bullish on um, demand uh, for transportation services continue, continuing to be strong. And then you know, on top of that, we have the potential for, um, you know, labor disruption, you know, at the middle of, of this year. But but one of your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I'll, I'll, a lot packed in there. So let's let's jump in first to, to talk about uh, the the whole container situation. And, and it's it was funny because I remember when and when Kaylee and, and Mike and I had a conversation back in November, I remember saying, hey, I think this is likely going to be an issue into Lunar New Year. The, the backup was so large. I think it was over 110 vessels uh, waiting to, to come in at that point that it was very clear that this was going to be an issue going forward. We've seen those backups and those delays spread out, right? Savannah's having trouble. Charleston's now having trouble. And those reports that were went through 2020 and 2021 without really much or any challenge, right? And I think that's that's an interesting concept because you pointed it out. Drayage capacity, truck capacity remains a continual challenge. And so one of the unique things that we've seen in some of the data that we've been looking at is that for the Port of Seattle and the Port of Long Beach, we've actually seen container dwell. So, you know, when it's discharged off the port, when it actually either goes out the gate or is loaded onto uh, a rail provider, that's actually shaved off by about a day and a half over the past four months. Some of that is obviously less import volume. Some of that is, you know, there are obviously some other tailwinds that come behind that. But some of that could actually be um, some softening demand, mainly around uh, some more consumer goods. And so I think that that's one of the the items that as COVID continues to wane or that people become more comfortable with it, we'll see maybe a transition over to adopting or deploying more capital towards services Mm -hmm. as people get out and about a little more. I think long term, I still am really bullish about the overall economy, and I still think there will be demand for services, or excuse me, for for goods. Mm-hmm. But I I don't know if the fundamentals about congestion at the ports, or processing, or throughput, or drainage capacity have fundamentally changed at all. I think there is just less of a like pre-holiday peak in demand, and and we're just starting to see that that kind of outflow and that relaxation of it. Yeah, it doesn't seem like we're having the same seasonal pattern with the Chinese um, New Year holiday as typically is the case. I don't know if that's because of um, you know COVID sort of discouraging the typical migration that, that that tends to take place, but it seems like both this year and last year didn't have the same um, this quite the same impact. Um, and so, I also want to ask you just on you know equipment. I mean, I think in the last year, if there, if there was you know lots of constraints on you know intermodal. Fluidity. I think if there was one that you'd probably call out, and uh, it's, it's really sort of the chassis, you know, availability issue, um, which has a lot to do with the sort of the anti-dumping cases. But then, you know, also heard um, when GATX reported a week or so ago, they said, well, the, the market for leasing rail cars has really um, taken a turn um, to, to be much tighter, and they're expecting, uh, you know, the leases on new rail cars to be priced above the expiring leases. But wanted to, you know, get your thoughts on any equipment availability um, you know, issues that, that, that you see. And I know on, on, on some of our other shows, you've um, you know, talked about how you know, repositioning the containers has, has, has been a big you know, issue, but just any, any thoughts on, on, on equipment and availability and, and, and getting the equipment to where it needs to be? 
Yeah. For, first of all, congrats to Paul Titterson at GACX on a, on his on his recent promotion. That that's obviously great news for the industry overall. Yeah. When I think about equipment, I, I'm thinking about it in a couple of different ways, right? So from the maritime side, I think there has been an interesting trend where you are now seeing unique shippers or major transportation companies going out and procuring 53 foot containers and using them in basically row row or some other kind of bulk service and they're coming into different ports. FedEx has done that really well and I think many other folks are going to continue to follow that strategy. So I think we're going to see an inflow of domestic 53 foot container on flat car containers coming in the market. I think that's a net positive because I think there's plenty of available capacity uh, that, oh, excuse me, there's going to be plenty of available demand out there that will be uh, ready to be soaked up by that. You bring up an interesting point around chassis. And there is a long-standing debate of around whether the, the overall North American market has enough chassis uh, for it to be serviced appropriately. The question about chassis is really, are they, are they in, in the correct place? And so I think what we're going to see is you're going to see that as the containers come in, very quickly behind that, about three to six months, you'll see an uptick in chassis being deployed into various markets. I think this will be a boom time for railroads who are leasing out equipment to BCOs and IMCs. I think that'll be an interesting trend to watch. But when I think about the overall rail car market and how leasing is definitely on the rise, I think one of the leading indicators that you probably saw as well is back in, in Q4, demand for new rail cars coming out of Trinity or Greenbrier or some other providers is booming. And for people to pony up and put down those types of investments on rail cars, which as you all know, are significant capital expenditures, oh, yeah. that tells me that there is going to be a boom for what? Raw materials typically products that are going to be put into to manufacture goods. And I think that's that's why I'm bullish on the overall North American economy, because there's still a lot of room to run in the market. And I'm we're really excited about that. And I will say one final piece, we are definitely seeing um, many customers that are involved in the rail space beginning to take out multiple leases for multiple different types of equipment to have direct access be able to move their materials in a very closed loop fashion. So that's been one interesting trend we've been we've been watching as well. Okay, so those are shippers that are leasing their rail cars instead of going through the leasing company because then you're maybe at the mercy of the the leasing company when those leases roll over, um, and if they roll over at a higher rate, you have to pay the higher the higher rate. Correct. Interesting. Or if something something shifts in the market very quickly, that you need to maybe rearrange that lease or you want to extend it. Right, you are no longer beholden to somebody who is really owning all that capacity. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I picked up is is sort of the, the more specific type of freight that a, a shipper is moving, the more likely they are to want to own that rail car and, and not rely on, you know, leasing company. Um, but that's interesting. Um, I'll, I'll throw one out here on uh, coal. Not something we talk a lot about on, on, on freight waves, but, um, you know, we have seen a sort of a resurgence in coal traffic on the railroads and some of this might just be natural gas prices it might just be a a, a blip but um is is coal still the you know undisputed secular decliner that, that it was and, and this is just sort of a an aberration or, or how do you view coal yeah i i think it's it's like how 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 wide are you taking the window right if you're looking at it over like a three to six month period uh, people are going to say, no, coal, is, coal still has plenty of room to run. Mm-hmm. I think if you take a long, longitudinal 25, 30 year view, mm-hmm. I think it is in secular decline. I, I think that there are going to be pockets for um, export coal that are going to still be very, very desirable to go to international markets. But I think 
more broadly, as the, the as the overall kind of global economy goes, there will be a continued press into other alternative energy, energy sources. And I think coal is, is we're definitely seeing its kind of last days. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. Um, I also want to ask you just, uh, you know, how do you view the, the contract rate environment this year? I mean, it seems like, you know, last year, sort of on the intermodal side, uh, you know, people were expecting maybe high single digits and it it didn't disappoint to the to the upside. It seems like um, if, if anything, people underestimated how much uh, rates were, were were rising. And as we head into to 2022, um, what do you think is going to happen with with contract uh, rates? Are, are they going to go up again by double digits, or you know, up, up less than that, or what do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, let, let me let, let me let me kind of soak that in as I answer my question. I, I'll get I'll get a little more specific. Um, so I was like actually looking at, at some data yesterday, really more so on the truckload side, and it was very interesting that um, spot rates relative to contract rates are now roughly about a 30% premium on the truckload side. When you get into more temperature controlled or specialized commodities, that's in the 40 to 50% range. So my viewpoint on that is um, when I think about rail pricing overall, truck tends to be kind of a, a directional indicator for, for where I, I tend to look at it. And I think it's going to continue to go higher. I think the other interesting thing is that rejection rates, and I think FreightWaves has has great a great data set on this as well, is that tender acceptance hasn't really improved much in these first couple of months of the year. And so that you know tender acceptance of fifty to seventy percent, which is trending flat to down, doesn't give me great, like a great excitement that the truck market is going to come roaring back and capacity is going to be widely available. So with that being said, I think that there will be uh, immense pressure on the capacity for the railroads. And I think that they, as they demonstrated at quarter after quarter after quarter, they will leverage pricing power. And I think that we will continue to see class ones come out and report that they are setting records upon records for how they were able to take price in the market. So I, I don't know if that's going to be on the, you know, strong double digits that we're seeing in the truckload market, which tends to have a ton of volatility. But I think the, the railroads will continue to have pricing power. And back to your earlier question, as that service product becomes more precise, more predictable, more consumer friendly, I think that value relative to truck plays out very, very, very well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm with you. I think rates are going higher. And I think that uh, tender rejections have not fallen as much as you would maybe think, given how high um, contract rates have risen uh, in, in the past year or so. Just have a couple minutes left, and I'll maybe just ask for a concise answer on this one. Um, you know, labor has been an issue for everything. It's actually even been an issue for things like drayage and the railroad industry, which railroad is pretty good jobs, nice unionized jobs. It not historically been a, a place where it's, it's really hard to find labor. Usually, they've been sort of slimming with attrition, um, as, as you know, probably throughout you know your. Your, your career, but um, do you think that's uh, this is a, a short-term phenomenon with uh, rail, class one rails having trouble finding labor, or do you think it's more of a, of a generational uh, issue? I, I definitely think it is going to be, uh, it's going to be a challenging labor market for anyone in the heavy, heavily industrialized space. I think that there are, there are a lot of new employers out there offering a tremendous amount of benefits, and I think it will continue to be a challenge, not only for rail, but for trucking and other more laborious type industries. That doesn't mean that those are not good jobs. They're great jobs. They move the economy. They, they provide great value for everyone. But I think there's a lot of opportunity to deploy new technology to make those jobs easier and more attractive because the wages and the, and the compensation and the benefits are already top-notch for, for the rail industry. 
great. Well, that's a great answer. And um, yeah, would encourage people to, you know, check out uh, freight transportation. I think it's becoming something that's more sought after um, with uh, all that's happened in, uh, in in the news and you know supply chains. I think if there's one maybe silver lining of all the supply chain issues, I think it's it's probably get, you know getting more talented people into the into the industry. Um, but but thanks uh, so much, Harris, uh, for for joining us. Um, you know, where can people you know reach out to you and and learn more about your uh, your venture? Yeah, LinkedIn is a is a great place to start. I'm happy to to connect with with folks on there and and continue the conversation. Looking forward to it. Thanks for the time, Mike. Great. Thanks again.